Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Justice Breyer is still on the court. (laughs) We'll be talking about that before recapping the recent crack sentencing argument with our guest, D.C. Solicitor General Lauren Ali Khan. So, Kimberly, obviously Breyer was still going to be on the court at this point in the term with decisions still pending, but... The question was whether after this final argument of the term in the Terry case on Tuesday, we might have seen some announcement, but we did not. Remind us when some other recent justices announced their retirement to give context to all this. Sure. So uh, the most recent retirement announcement, of course, was Justice Kennedy, who announced after all of the decisions had been handed down and the court closed out the term. But that turns out to be an outlier. And so we saw Justice Stevens announced um, in April, uh, Souter in May, uh, Blackman in April, and White in, even in March. Um, so if we look you know, uh, at the majority of justices who have retired, you know, most recently, it's more likely that they go after or they announce after arguments. But obviously, that didn't happen here. So uh, I think the next uh, kind of window we should be looking out for is right after the court Uh, gavels out its term. So that raises the obligatory speculation. What do we think is going to happen at that point? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, talking to a lot of people about this and kind of get answers from all over the map. I think the you know, major consideration is that the Senate is so close, 50-50, anything could happen. So, you know, it's a little precarious. Justice Breyer, having been a Senate aide, probably understands uh, those considerations. The question is whether or not, you know, he wants to step down, whether or not he feels like he's healthy enough to stay, and, you know, whether or not this pressure um, that we've been seeing from a lot of liberal groups as something that would cause him to hesitate, not to like, you know, show them and own the libs or anything, but uh, because he's very concerned about the Supreme Court looking like a political institution. Um, and so maybe he doesn't want to be seen as kind of bowing to that pressure. But as you mentioned, this is all speculation, and we're just going to have to wait to see what uh, Justice Breyer does. How about you? For whatever reason, I'm increasingly convinced that I won't be surprised if he doesn't retire at the end of this term. What do you mean? I think that's just because of how the politics of the Supreme Court appointments process has been going (laughs) recently. That would be consistent with that trend, meaning pretty much the Democrats have lost at every turn in the recent judicial confirmation wars. So this would be consistent with that trend to then continue the possibility of them losing yet again. So I guess the question will be, Will Justice Breyer do something that could put the Democrats in a position to not lose? That would be the surprising thing to me at this point. <laughs> well, then, and he's also, as David Latt reported, um, you know, has hired a full slate of clerks, including one very recently. So you would makes you question whether or not he would have done that if he wasn't intending to stay on the court. You know, he'd have to kind of farm them out to the other justices, and that's not really what everyone signed up for. So, Or he's just doing that to keep throwing us off the scent. That could be it. That could be it. So should we set up this case before we bring on our guest? Let's set up this case before Justice Breyer retires. Uh, so this is Terry versus United States. We talked a little bit about this in our sneak peek episode last week. Uh, Jordan, tell us what's going on here and why are we hearing this case in May? 
Sure. So I'll answer the last question first. We're hearing this case in May because previously the Justice Department under the Trump administration took the opposite position of the defendant, which is kind of what usually happens. And then on the day that the Justice Department's brief was due in the case, the department now under the Biden administration said, just kidding, we actually agree with the opposite of what we said. We agree with the defendant now. And that was just a month out from when the argument was going to be heard in April. So the court postponed the argument, wound up resetting it from May 4th this past Tuesday, and appointing an amicus to argue for the government's abandoned position, Adam Mortara, who they have appointed as an amicus before. Setting up what this case is actually all about does require an annoying amount of background, but it's necessary. Otherwise, you're just not going to understand what's happening here. Okay, go back to 1986, the heyday of the crack cocaine frenzy. That leads to the passage of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, famously backed by most politicians, including our now president, Joe Biden. And that set out the infamous 100 to 1 crack to powder cocaine ratio, meaning if you had one gram of crack, you were punished as if you had 100 grams of powder cocaine. Uh, There was no basis in science for it. It was basically made up. As most of us know now, it wound up at the very least having a racially discriminatory impact on black people. All of that is well settled now. And so within that, the law set out three tiers of quantities, A, B, and C. Under A, the minimum was 50 grams. That was the most severe penalty starting there. Under B, it was five grams, and then there was this subsection C, which was sort of a catch-all provision, which didn't have a minimum amount. And then in 2010, when Obama was president, Congress wound up passing the Fair Sentencing Act, and that wound up reducing the made-up 100 to 1 crack-to-powder ratio to a new made-up ratio, and that made the ratio 18 to 1. And when it did that, it changed the, it didn't do that by lowering the amount of powder cocaine, it did it by raising the amount of crack cocaine necessary to trigger those mandatory minimums. So before where A was 50 grams, now it's 280 grams. Before where B was 5 grams, now it's 28 grams. And then under subsection C, this catch-all provision, it didn't do anything to that at least not directly. So now in 2018... Wait, wait, wait. So now we're in 2018? Finally. We're getting close. <laughs> so 2018, the First Step Act. Now Donald Trump is president. This is the famous bipartisan reform that happened during his tenure. That makes the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act newly made up 18 to 1 ratio retroactive. But it only does that for what are called covered offenses. And a covered offense under the First Step Act means one whose statutory penalties were modified by the Fair Sentencing Act. So raises the question, what does that mean? Everyone agrees that obviously that was true for A and B, but the question is, what does that mean for this catch-all provision in C, which the law didn't say anything about directly? And so that sets up this argument where, according to the defense, it can't be that these higher level offenders, potential kingpins, can get resentencing, but the lower level offenders cannot. That's the gist of their argument as far as how congressional intent had to show that these lower level offenders can benefit too. But as we'll talk about in the argument, not all of the justices agreed with that, and it seemed like possibly all of the justices did not agree with that. 
All right. Well, uh, let's bring on our guests to talk about this case and what happened during the arguments. Lauren Ali Khan is the Solicitor General of the District of Columbia. Before joining the D.C. AG's office, she was a litigator with O'Melveny and Myers Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. She previously served as a Bristow Fellow in the Solicitor General's office at DOJ. And she's here today because she's lead counsel on an amicus brief supporting resentencing eligibility for Terry. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. So in this case, you filed a brief on behalf of D.C. and several states siding with the defense. What led you to weigh in here? Sure. So the issue in this case is is whether defendants who were sentenced for low-level crack cocaine offenses before Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 are eligible for lower sentences under the First Step Act of 2018. The reason that we decided to file an amicus brief is because I think the district's experience with the crack cocaine epidemic is um, pretty emblematic of the urban experience across the country. And I think we also, um, you know, much like the federal government in initially responding to it, came out with mandatory minimum sentences. And we came to realize as the science on the addiction of crack cocaine changed that these were not necessary and they were also having a very um, disparate racial effect on our population. So we changed those laws. And when we started looking at states around the country, you know, they had also had similar experiences. Those that had increased crack cocaine penalties in response to the epidemic of the 70s and the 80s have also come to revise those policies. And so we thought it was important that states being where a lot of criminal law, the majority of criminal law happens, and also being laboratories of democracy, the fact that almost all states have coalesced around not having mandatory minimum offenses and certainly not having anything like a 100 to 1 crack to powder cocaine ratio, that we wanted this view to be known to the court. Right. I mean, the whole backdrop of this is that the 100 to 1 ratio and even the 18 to 1 ratio, that's unscientific, right? It's basically made up in the result of a compromise, isn't it? That's right. I mean, the ratio that we had, even at the height of our penalty structure, was a 10 to 1 ratio. And we found that that wasn't backed by science, which caused the change in our laws. Um, And obviously, you can't think about this question without thinking about the significant racial disparities that this causes and the way in which it, it ravaged communities of color, especially in urban areas. So we believe that Congress clearly intended to extend relief as broadly as possible, uh, and that's in line with what the district and other jurisdictions have done. And so that was part of the reason we filed in this case. So before we get into some of the arguments, um, one thing that makes this case uh, unique was the Biden administration's change in position. Um, And wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how that process unrolled. Um, You know, did they tell you they were thinking about it or were you guys just surprised like everyone else? So the Justice Department famously keeps their cards close. uh, So we were not aware that they were changing position until they changed position, which is is pretty much consistently how they operate. Um, And, you know, I I think they got a little bit of pushback at oral argument, especially from the chief for their change in position. And I I think that's because every time there's a new administration, you're going to see some positions of the Justice Department change at the margins. But this was a position the Justice Department had taken, you know, federal prosecutors around the country had been making these arguments, they'd been taking them up through appeals. And I can imagine someone like the chief who was in the SG's office and was responsible for making these decisions, thinking, well, maybe I wouldn't have changed position in this case. And so now, Eric Fagan, I'm going to ask why you are changing position. In uh, on this case, uh, the department switched uh, its position from being the respondent to supporting the petitioner. Um, Prior administrations have done that. Subsequent administrations are going to do that. 
Um, but I wondered what standard your office applies in deciding when to take that that step. I mean, when I was in the SG's office, I was there for the um, Bush-Obama transition, and we had a few changes in cases, as you're always going to. But I think it's pretty rare that you change positions in criminal cases just because the Justice Department's kind of institutional practices in criminal cases are, are pretty cut and dry. And so once you've litigated something in a variety of jurisdictions and you've litigated up through wins and courts of appeals, it, it does seem quite rare to take a, a different tack, especially after cert has been granted. But here, I think uh, you know, President Biden and, and the Biden Justice Department are really interested in criminal justice reform, and this seems like a good issue for them to you know, start that project. Yeah, it seemed like Eric Fagan did a pretty good job of kind of dodging the chief's question of what is the office's actual policy. And it was actually kind of interesting, even going beyond this case, the question of what does the office actually take into consideration, as opposed to maybe some prior times we've seen an oral argument, where it's basically just one justice or another yelling at the person for changing position and saying, why did you do that here? It seems like the chief kind of knows that. And that's sort of almost a tired critique in some way. So he wanted to try and get something out of it. But I don't think we really did get anything out of it, did we? I mean, perhaps I'm a little less cynical. I think maybe he was just genuinely interested in what the current DOJ's process was for changing position. But those policies, much like DOJ's positions in cases, right, are, are kept very close within OSG and I imagine in that AG's front office. So um, it didn't surprise me that Eric would not have a, a ready and publicly available answer to that question, though I'm sure they have a very thorough process for deciding when to change positions. I suppose this is slightly different than the kind of declining to defend circumstance, right? Because there's an obligation for them to, to defend statutes that have been enacted by the legislature. The process for changing positions there is, I think, much more onerous. I think there's a much higher bar. And here when it's just, you know, what is our kind of criminal justice view and how do we interpret this this law that has been enacted and we think is perfectly constitutional, you know, I think perhaps different and, and more policy considerations come into play. And actually, I have another question before we actually get into the substance. This is good, this kind of inside baseball stuff, because there was a somewhat of a light moment to start Eric Fagan's argument where Chief Justice Roberts referred to him as general, and then Eric Fagan being the deputy solicitor general made some kind of joke about that. Thank you, counsel. Uh, general Fagan. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, for the promotion, and may it please the court. What do you, uh, as a general yourself, what do you make of this whole calling solicitors general general, despite not being a military appointment that can send people into war and whatnot? <laughs> So I actually have a lot of feelings about this. Um, I, I love that the chief refers to the Solicitor General as general. Uh, he often does it to state solicitors general as well. Um, but if you look at the term Solicitor General, the, the operative term is solicitor and the jurisdiction is general. So I think if anything, the appropriate term would be solicitor. Um, but I, I do like how the Supreme Court is very much, you know, steeped in historical practice and that this practice is carried forward throughout the days. And I mean, solicitor is just not as cool sounding as general. Oh, no, I mean. not, not as fun. <laughs> I guess um, on to the argument, you know, we've talked about how you got, um, you know, a pretty broad group of people um, kind of on the defense side here, including the Biden administration, which switched sides. Um, and but it doesn't 
really look like it's going to have a broad coalition within the Supreme Court. Was that your reading of the argument as well? Yeah, I think it's very clear that the justices were having a difficult time with the text. And I think no one could look at this statute and think that Congress wasn't intending for the its benefits to go to the lowest level offenders. Because otherwise you have a situation in which, you know, the kingpins, the ones that have, you know, very, very high drug quantities are getting the opportunity to have their sentences reduced. But the low level offender, someone here, um, you know, was responsible for for what was it, I think, $50 worth of crack as it came out during the argument. So to think that a $50 crime results in a huge amount of penalty in jail time and that there's no ability to get out from under that when Congress was directly trying to address that problem and perhaps did so inartfully. And that $50 point actually came out through questioning by Justice Kavanaugh, whose questions, although I think he's probably the one most likely to play devil's advocate from what we've seen, and so it's tough to draw a conclusion from it, but his questions were some of the best for Terry in an argument where there were really few questions that were good for him, I think. I think Justice Kavanaugh is thinking really seriously about this. I mean, I I think he thinks seriously about all of his cases, but as someone who um, lived in D.C. for the majority of his career, if not the entirety of his his life, I think he is well aware of how the crack epidemic affected D.C. I mean, he even referenced uh, the University of Maryland basketball player that overdosed. And, you know, so I think he's keenly aware of what the facts on the ground looked like. And he was trying, I think, to wrestle with the text of the statute while also keeping that in mind. But I, I don't know if you read it this way. It seemed listening to me, the justices sort of agree with you that maybe that's what Congress was trying to do. But uh, what to do if that's not actually what they did with the language of the statute. Um, and that's kind of something we've seen play out in other cases as well. Um, and just wondering, you know, going forward, how what should be that relationship between, you know, Congress and the court? Should, you know, should they follow their intention or the text or some kind of hybrid? Well, I think as Justice Kagan famously said, we're all textualists now. So I, I don't think you're going to see this court not looking at the text. I think this is a different case from your average statutory interpretation case, though. And that's because you have the Fair Sentencing Act, which you know does something. And then you have the First Step Act that's trying to retroactively apply the Fair Sentencing Act. And so I think the sort of case for inartful drafting is at a zenith here because you're trying to capitalize on you know previous legislation and do so in a way that, that makes sense. And I think that the Justice Department has, and Terry, have the better of the argument that this did change for you know, all categories, whether it's the lowest level offenders up to the highest, because the, the point was to just completely you know, rejigger how this, you know, which category you fell into and how this process worked. And so I don't think that you can read the text in such a cramped way when you know that Congress intended something broader. So all this stuff is pretty complicated, right? I'm wondering, though, and as the argument went on, I was wondering if Mr. Terry was perhaps not the best person to have brought this case uh, because he was sentenced as a career offender because he had prior convictions. So this is all a little more complicated than you hear just, okay, he had less than four grams of crack. He was sentenced to more than 15 years in prison. What the hell? The justices were harping on this career offender part, which adds yet another wrinkle to all this, doesn't it? And so I'm wondering if that could be something that winds up kind of messing it up for everybody who's trying to get resentenced. 
My sense is that if the justices think that the career offender provisions make it hard for them to rule in this case, the result that we would hope for is for it to be dismissed as improvidently granted and to wait for the next case that comes along that presents this issue. Um, But I I was surprised by how much the justices were focused on the career offender provisions. It's my understanding that those sentenced under A and B are still eligible to ask for resentencing, despite the fact that they might be in a similar situation, given the career offender guidelines. Uh, And so it seems to me that that might be a reason that a district court in its exercise of discretion declines to modify a sentence, but it shouldn't be something that keeps you from getting into court to begin with. And then what did you take make of the fact that Justice Gorsuch asked no questions at all in this case? I mean, um, (laughs) usually they'll at least pipe up once um, during at least these remote arguments, but um, he passed each time. So what, what should we make of that? I was surprised. Maybe he thought school's out for summer, right? We're not supposed to have arguments in May, and he's just, he's not condoning the practice. This is two terms in a row, right? Um, I know. But yeah, that that was interesting, because he normally asks thoughtful questions, probing questions, and so the fact that he didn't have any questions here uh, really was, was quite surprising. So in addition to it being surprising, did it indicate to you one way or the other that he might be leaning? I mean, Justice Gorsuch is a maverick. I I don't want to ever guess where he's leaning. Um, Yeah, I mean, when he didn't ask any questions of petitioner side, I was wondering if he was going to come in and ask some questions of uh, the appointed amicus. And when he didn't, I thought, okay, I can't read any tea leaves from this because his silence is not something from which you can discern his position. I'll ask one last question to see if you want to answer it or not. Another interesting exchange during the argument was between Justice Breyer and the court-appointed amicus, Adam Ortara, where Breyer, it almost seemed like, and tell me if either of you read this differently, like Breyer was yelling at Mortara for something that the government did. Justice Breyer, I think what you said is 100% correct. And I would further point out that reclassifying somebody as a career offender or not is precisely what is occurring in some of these resentences. Oh, under the- correct. Why did the government argue what it argued? They know these as well as I do, probably better. Your Honor, I am here to explain many things. The behavior of the United States government in this case is not one of them. My question is... Do you think that that will be Justice Breyer's last ever exchange at a Supreme Court oral (laughs) argument? I take no position on that question. Uh, But yeah, Justice Breyer was was bringing it in hot. Um, And he had quite the the questions for everyone, which I mean, frankly, Justice Breyer always has good questions, but he was exercised about this case. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I was not expecting him to be as aggressively against the position of of Terry and the government as he appeared to be. Uh, But um, at the same time, you see strange lineups sometimes. Well, hopefully we won't have to wait too long to see what the court does in this case, because one benefit of having this late session is that hopefully that means the opinion isn't too, too far away. But thank you so much for coming on, solicitor, and discussing this case with us. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll all, as we said at the top, we'll all have to see about Breyer. We still have a ways to go on opinions. We've gotten 25 of those with 33 left to go. Um, Most of those have been unanimous. But of course, as we get closer to the end of the term and we start getting some more of those controversial decisions, I think 
Uh, we'll see more divided outcomes. That is going to change the format for our podcast a little bit. Of course, we won't be previewing any oral arguments because there are no more. We'll just be kind of giving you a recap of the opinions that come down um, as they roll them out. Thank you, General Robinson. Until then, you can follow along with the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com and follow us on TikTok. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224ths of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.